1: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Dun, I'm so bored. How are you?
1: Mm. Yeah, mum's bored as well. You're bored as well. I'm quite bored, yeah. I'm quite bored. And as
2: a family of people who identify as people that never get bored... Yeah. It's quite a feat, isn't it?
1: For us to be all bored.
2: I never get bored, ever.
1: Mm, I tend not to go... Do you know what? I really am missing travelling. I've really... um, Just not being able to go places is really doing my head in. Same.
2: And I just miss going into Soho, going for a few drinks, and then that escalating into a big night out. Oh, get off. That's what I really miss. To bed anyway, by half nine. My, my only news today is that I've, I've accidentally chewed a chunk and of I my cheek. And I so was I'm there. So I'm in a bit of agony. What it's, were we doing?
1: It's why you were making me be a young woman in a screen test thing that I didn't understand. I was really doing understand. a little screen
2: test, and obviously because I don't have anyone else to do it with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I had well, to should use be, my dad. mum, have done it. Can you imagine? No, I'm sorry, wouldn't, wouldn't that right. would have been painful. <laughs> she would have been so impatient. Anyway, it's fine. In the future, I'm going to get Jack to do it with me, but mm. I had to use you today Yeah, to do a little screen test with me.
1: Yeah, I was quite good, wasn't
2: I? You were really good. I think you're going to get the part, <laughs> and I won't. <laughs> I That's
1: think you I, I was really good into it. You yeah.
2: were, you were really good. I was very, you know, if you didn't have that <laughs> meeting, we could have gone all day. It was just, we're having a fun time. But you weren't very complimentary about me.
1: No, it wasn't I wasn't complimentary. I felt you weren't putting enough energy into it. And I think sometimes, I'm going to be very honest there, Grace.
2: I'm don't good with criticism.
1: You're not that great with criticism. It usually leads to a row. And also, I just did say once or twice, there wasn't enough energy in what you were doing. And I think sometimes... And then I
2: put energy into it, yeah, right? Yeah, you did.
1: But I think sometimes you think that unless you're playing... You think you're so interesting, that unless you're playing yourself, the parts mm. boring.
2: No, I never said it was boring. I did just...
1: No, but you know what I mean? You sort of... You think this isn't me, it's not really me.
2: I don't think it's that, I just think because. <sighs> Self obsessed. Self obsessed. Well, let me tell you. And then I was thinking today about your acting debut when you did that show when you were playing yourself on the TV.
1: Jimmy McGovern. Jim, yeah. What was it
2: called? Accused. Accused, yeah. yeah. And uh, that was your acting debut.
1: No, it wasn't that was my television debut. My acting debut was was actually a French play when I was seventeen. Wow. Yeah.
2: No, quite... but have you ever been in a movie, no? Uh
1: that was my first acting debut in a movie. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: Well, we'll get you, I'll get you into something one day. Okay, thanks. A little cameo. Yeah.
1: By the way, have you heard my, um, that Radio 4 documentary the other day? The no, internet? I will listen to You'd it. You'd enjoy it, actually. i really, really enjoyed it. The guy's a good interviewer.
2: God, you call me self-obsessed. And,
1: I'm, you know, and it was really nice just to be able to talk about myself. And... No,
2: to be listening to yourself <laughs> talking about yourself. That
1: was cool. But I did say very nice things about you lot, and I did actually say When's something. it from? Well, what they do, it's like a Desert Island Discs, but of news archive. You've
2: never been asked to do Desert Island Discs, have I you? have, actually, yeah. Why haven't you done it?
1: Because... <gasps> Dad, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was ages ago, and I said yes, and then I chose the records, and then something happened. I can't remember what it was. The Iraq it War. Go somewhere. It wasn't the Iraq War. <laughs> uh, but anyway, this is like... So what they do is they take ar- clips from the archives, and... And then you talk about them. And then you talk about them. And you don't... Unlike Desert Island Discs, you don't know what they are. But the guy, John Wilson, who's the interviewer, he presents Front Row. Mm,
2: I've heard him before. He's
1: really good. And his dad was Bob Wilson, who was a great footballer, played for Arsenal and Scotland. So
2: you're immediately impressed.
1: Well, I like... And and also, I used to work with Bob Wilson on Breakfast Telly. But anyway, it was a really good interview because... It was with you? No, because I've done lots of crap interviews. Well, I meant from the interviewer. He's a really good interviewer. You should listen to it.
2: I will. Um, Well, speaking of interviews, should we introduce who we've got on the podcast today? Why don't we do that? Yeah.
1: Somebody a bit closer to my generation than yours.
2: Yeah, of course, but also somebody who loves me.
1: Yeah, she does. And, and her mum-in-law and her her, mum her loves me. Her mother-in-law loves you, loves her loves you and, she's 90, and she's in her 90s, 90s yeah. yeah. And
2: she loves me, so yeah. Yeah. proof that I'm not just for... I think they both nonprofits. love me a lot as well. But... I know, but she seemed super enthusiastic. So <laughs> apparently her <laughs> mum-in-law loves my Instagram, so that's lovely to hear. It
1: is nice for your Instagram, which I think my... I do occasionally say to myself, God, I'm glad mum's dead.
2: But your Instagram, <laughs> I think your your mum would be pretty ashamed of that as well.
1: Why? Because
2: you're so bad at it. I oh,
1: know. She, she, <laughs> she, 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 did you see, by the she way? She had
2: an iPad, your mum. She
1: did. There was an Irish guy yesterday. He did, he started to copy my Instagram you're ramples. Yeah, they're very funny. What, to do a piss, as a piss take? No, he just sort of says, you know, he's, he, I was watching Alistair Campbell. He does these things where he just walks around talking. I'm going to just walk around and talk.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, Tyler, my best friend, who's been having a particularly hard time recently, she says the only thing that calms her down is watching your Instagram lives. because She just feels so comforted (laughs) because she feels like she's hanging out with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Listen, no, she can't really hang out because of the pandemic, can she?
2: No, anyway,
1: anyway, back to our guest. So our guest is one of the most successful writers in the world. I mean, she's sold millions and millions and millions of her books. That's amazing. And she's also an incredibly nice person and very, very positive. Um, and so I was really chuffed when I asked her to do the podcast and yeah. she said yes. Um, and she's got a book out at the moment called The City of Tears, which uh, I've read. And actually, I've written a profile of her based partly on the book, partly on the interview in The New European, which is out this week. Um, but her name is, is Kate Moss. Moss.
2: We didn't even talk about the fact that she's got the same name as
1: no Kate Moss. And listen, I, I was up till three in the morning finishing City of Tears.
0: Uh-huh. Thank you,
1: which I loved. Thank um, you, hundred chapters if you include the epilogue and the, <laughs> the acknowledgements. And I'm going to start with the acknowledgements. <laughs> Your last line of the book is just a sort of peon of love to your husband and your two kids. Now, I know we all do that in our books, mm. right? We all sort of dedicate them to our kids, and you know, I have to, <laughs> my kids always have to worry about which one gets more in the index and all No, that. only <laughs> you worry
2: about that. No one else
1: can. <laughs>
2: okay,
1: Parents worry do that. worry about that.
0: <laughs> it's true.
1: But yours, yours, like, just tell me a little bit about. Because obviously, Grace and I, are doing this podcast, we talk about the intergenerational thing quite a lot. We'll come mm-hmm. on to talk about your your caring, but just tell us a little bit about your kids and your relationship with them.
0: Well, I um they are my daughter is nearly thirty one, and my son is twenty eight. And one of the things that has been so fantastic this year is that we have been able, we've spent a lot of time together in a way that has been you know there's been so many terrible things about the pandemic, obviously, in almost everything. But that has been an unexpected joy because my son's an actor. So he's often, you know, we see him in London or wherever he is. um, And but he can only come home for weekends when he's not working, you know, and that's quite. And my daughter also and her partner live in London and they come home quite a lot uh, to Sussex, which is where we live. But this year they spent some of the lockdowns and my son has been here since December, And it's been a complete delight um, because it's I feel so much for all of my girlfriends who have who are homeschooling and who have got little children. And suddenly and I've got grown up children who cook meals and are great company. And, you know, and so that's been fantastic. And Greg and I, my husband, Greg and I met at school when we were 15. Um, So we really have known each other a very, very long time. Um, we went out when we were teenagers and then went to separ- went our separate ways and then met literally out of the blue on a train. What? Um, I know. I mean, it, it, it seriously, Grace, if I actually wrote it down in novel, people go, really? It's a bit far-fetched. But it was that ridiculous. Grace got off a plane. He lived in Paris, hadn't been in England for three years, got on a train going down to Sussex to go and see his mum, sat opposite me. Wow. and it was you know completely crazy so and that of
1: course so what, was the, what was the gap between going out at 15 and meeting again by chance six years wow yeah. Grace, if you if, if you'd have got hitched with whoever you were going out with at 15 who would my son-in-law have been
2: <laughs> i didn't have a boyfriend at 15 no i wasn't lucky enough that i love that story though but then after that did you become did you just get together
0: Yes, uh, yes, absolutely, because it was kind of... Um, Serendipitous. It was straightforward that, ah, uh, yes, that that was the right thing. That was the right thing way back then. You know, we were each other's first love, and then, of course, we went off and did different things with other people. <laughs> well, people
2: always say when you get divorced, like in your middle age period, you should always go back to, like, a childhood sweetheart, because that will always sort of help you recover from the heartbreak. Well, you know, I think... I think what it is it, it depends what well, I was quite
0: young um for my age you know I was I went to a 2,000 strong girls comprehensive school and I was a SWOT and um so spent a lot of time scuttling in early to avoid the very popular but also very scary girls and then staying late you know to go to orchestra practice and things like this so I was not one of those sophisticated uh, teenagers at all and it very much was you know Sussex in the 1970s, you know, when all the young people at the moment are saying, "No, it's really awful because we've got nowhere to go," and I go, "No, that's right," but there was there never used to be anywhere to go. <laughs> you know, we just hung about on park benches for all of our teenage life. and um, I think that what can happen if you do meet somebody that, for whatever reason, is is your person or one of your people, is that it's before you have all the layers of the world on you. So before you've started to think about how you come across, or what sort of person you are—you just are you—in um, that sort of way. And so, I think maybe you kind of see truer things about people before you start to have this kind of carapace of makeup and world and study. And, and thinking about what experience.
2: other people think as well. I think yeah. there's something when you're yeah. young you don't really care about that, and then as you get older, you, you know, well, take. Well, I was on. quite.
0: I I was always quite sort of, you know, it, I, I've never forgot. I quite often walk past this house. And I look back, and I, I was never a, a wild teenager in that sort of way. And so I can remember very clearly going to a party, and there being elderly neighbours next door. And at the age of sixteen, being devastated for the noise that this must be making. Oh so I, I was never that. No, I. Was <laughs> yeah, well, you see, this is why your daughter's so successful and funny. And I was really po-faced and annoying, probably. No, I. I so I was never like that. You know, I just was, you know quite middle aged. How,
1: how different how different was the fifteen year old Kate Moss to the twenty-one year old and how different was was Greg? He
0: he's um he just always knew that he had a skill for languages, um and was actually much more able to do some of the things than he he was in the boys' comp next door <laughs> also. And there was a, a terrible Macrocarpa hedge that was up the middle of the playing field. And of course all the naughty children went very close to the hedge at break time. Um, and that's how, you know, almost every liaison Chichester's ever happened, is through that hedge. Um, but he, so when he left university, um, he had got enough money. He wanted to go to Spain, but he hadn't got enough money. So he'd got enough money to get a coach to Paris. So he got on a coach and arrived in Paris. And within a couple of years was an interpreter. So he just knew that it had never been discovered that he was any good. So he was a very different person. He was living in Paris and doing, you know, an amazing, exciting job and all of these things. Whereas I don't, I I think I've been thinking about it quite a lot because of being in lockdown. And I live in Chichester where we grew up, you know, and we've been walking around, particularly in the first lockdown. And it feels like our childhood. You know, everything shut on a Sunday, Um, you know, went to church in the morning. Um, there was a couple of hotels that did lunches if you were going out but that was it everything else was shut (laughs) it's quite like that again Um, and it's one of those people where people a lot of us have come back to so you know I lived I went to university and then I moved to London and then Greg had gone to university in London then went to Paris and then but when our kids were nine and six we came home and a, we've there's a lot of people like us i think and yeah.
1: yeah and you said you said in the in the acknowledgements that he's your your first reader as well do your kids read your stuff as well
0: yes um yes they absolutely do but they don't read at editing stage they read when the book is the book um, okay you know felix is his resting job um is um as a script editor and script writer so he he writes as well and Marthy is um, a, is an artist. I mean, well, works in art. So she was at uh, the Alexander McQueen Foundation Saraband, and now she's at the Courtauld, Um, And she was a feminist performance artist. Um, so her sort of expression is is visual, um, whereas the rest of us write. So you know, Felix, you know, is a big big reader, and so is Marthy. But they 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 like having the finished book. And Granny Rosie who is a massive reader, but she's quite honest. She says, my books are not her cup of tea. <laughs> so, so she doesn't read them. Um, she's read my, some of my Gothic stuff, the taxidermist daughter she read, because it's all set where she grew up. And when I said, when she'd finished it, it's really, you know, it's proper got, you know, Gothic thriller. <laughs> it's a lot yeah. of, yes, human taxidermy, a lot of people die. <laughs> when she finished reading it, I said, what did you think of the story, Rosie? She went, Oh, I didn't really notice the story, but I was very interested in all the bits set in Fishbourne and Appledrome which are the local <laughs> villages. So she it passed her by. The fact that everybody was being stuffed alive. <laughs> yes.
1: So she she wouldn't read City of Tears. No. Listen to it.
0: No, she's heard enough about it. Probably the weeping right. and gnashing of teeth. But she's not. Um, she she reads a book a day, um, and I get sent lots of proofs, like I bet you both do, and so she's. She's, you know, grabs things out of my trembling hand as I get them out of the envelope, if she likes the look of it. But his, but historical fiction isn't. She's not passionate about history. That's the thing. So the <laughs> Greg,
1: does Greg make comments which significantly change the book or not?
0: Yeah, he's a brilliant editor. Absolutely brilliant editor. He, he was a teacher. Um, he taught creative writing and it has a big playwriting programme. So it's not like giving your... A beloved person, your script, when actually they don't know anything about it, because it's such a burden. Because anybody who loves you is going to want to say, "This
2: is great, darling." um You know, really?
0: well, <laughs>
2: not not my dad, but most oh, right. most normal people with the, their loves, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, so so actually, <laughs> mum doesn't. Mom always says, "Oh, I didn't like that bit." You're probably more
0: intellectually rigorous, maybe. Really, you know, I'm. You know, I think I think it can be quite a burden if there are two people who write in a family, or you share with your best girlfriend or whatever, and and that you're all in the same area. But if you know Greg is trained, I mean he, he so he's very. I'll say this is great, but I'm not sure this works. Or quite often with me, do we need this many priests? Or you know, there's an awful lot of nuns in this chapter.
1: Yeah, you've yeah, you've also got a very naughty priest who who well, has absolutely her hand slides under his robe. One of the one of the short but very raunchy sex scenes. Yes,
0: well you know, I'm, I'm it's too tiring to write many of them, isn't it? But you
2: know. <laughs> well, you know, Kate, my dad, my dad get wrote free. a sex scene that got voted the worst ever sex scene in a novel. No, it was the runner-up. The right. Runner-up. Oh, it was run that's lead. even worse, isn't it? Yeah. Being the no, runner-up. It was, it
1: was, my my agent Ed Victory said at the time. He said, "This is one where you want to get nominated, but you don't want to." Oh, but listen, you mentioned your, your mother-in-law, and as, as, um, as, as Grace knows, I have a very, very, very good relationship with, with her grandmother, Fiona's mum, but I don't know if I could be her carer. <laughs> and yet you are the prime carer for your mother-in-law, and you seem to have an amazing relationship.
0: She is a total hoot. So the very first time I met Granny Rosie, and she's known to everybody as Granny Rosie, she was coming down the lane on a moped in a vest and a pair of shorts that would, you know, make little mix look overdressed, um, carrying a a riding helmet in her hand, sitting on a horse riding saddle on top of the moped saddle. I I love her. her. You would absolutely, that's why she finds you so hilarious, because, um, you know, Scarlett, Kurtish, uh, you know, showed me some of your stuff, and so I and I watched some of it. And Granny is, you know, she's she's Sussex-born and bred, and she's got an earthy sense of humour, and she just loves laugh, you know, she loves to laugh in that sort of way, and that's why she loves your stuff because it's kind of like it's right there. And Granny, you know, was very much like that. And I've and she, when our children were little, she was very. She's lived with us for 27 years. So when we came back to Sussex, she moved in with us anyway. And she was the most brilliant granny. You know, she's the granny that taught them to do cartwheels in the garden and broke her ribs climbing over the wall because she'd forgotten her key. And, you know, she's that, um, that person. And so it is genuinely a complete pleasure now um, to be able to repay some of that because she's, she's been in a wheelchair now for nearly two years. And so her health has only, she's only required me uh, you know, for that kind of caring in, in, for a couple of years, and before that, maybe for a few years before. And my parents used to live here too. Um, my parents, my dad died in 2011, and my mum very suddenly in, in 2014. So it's been a kind of multi generational, uh, and I've been a carer on and off for more than 10 years now. Um, but it goes back to that same thing that if you were loved, unconditionally as I was as a child and both my sisters live in villages nearby and you know all of this sort of stuff um it makes a world of difference and because Greg and I have known each other since we were 15 we have known each other's parents all that time it's very different from
2: normal grown-ups if you like putting (laughs) families together well dad you better love me unconditionally then if you want me to live (laughs) after you I do love you unconditionally but Kate are you the oldest yeah. Yeah. Cuz I it's interesting um and it, is it just girls? Yes. Yeah. Cuz like cuz I have two brothers and I do feel it will be even though I'm the youngest the responsibility will fall on me because I'm the only girl and that's what well, tends st- to happen. statistically that is extremely likely.
0: Um you know one of the reasons I'm I'm writing a book about care is it it is it is the social issue and it is a feminist issue and it's um you know, for me, it has been an, a privilege, and it has been a way of repaying a, a childhood that w- I you know feel very grateful for and a mother-in-law who I adore. But for a lot of people, it isn't like that at all. The pressures are huge and there's very, very little support and um
1: said to Greg. I can't have your mother living here the
0: <laughs> No, I, you know, Never I think Rosie and I are each other's favourite person. Oh you know, we, well, we that very is friendly. so cute. We're to- I mean, I'll, I'll send you a picture of her, Grace. I mean, she's, the thing is, she's just, there, there will be a moment. This is why this is good we're doing this at 10 o'clock. Because at one minute past 12, I will hear the wheelchair and gr- Granny's head will go around the corner <laughs> of my study because I have a study off the kitchen. So, you know, I can hear and all the rest of it. And she will say, is the sun over the yard arm? And I will say, it's over the yard arm somewhere. And she'll have a gin and tonic with her lunch. And then at bedtime, she'll say, I'm off to bed now. Um, and, I, and I'll and i say, would you like a restorative? She said, oh, just a small one. And, and she'll have a whiskey mac. So there's only two. But, you know, she's she kind of, you know, embraces it all. Um, and... Yeah. Yeah, so we sit at the end of the kitchen table, you know, we've got our rel- you know, our places at the end of the table and I read a detective story or, you know, bugger around on Twitter or something and Granny Rosie's doing a jigsaw or knitting. Um, she raised, last year, she raised more than a £1,000 for the children's hospice from knitting tiny things like choir boys holding, you know, little ducks or, you know. So she's, you know, she is a legend. Granny Rosie is a legend and... Um,
1: Grace, Grace, Grace has always, you've always had a thing about old people
2: you? yeah I, I really lo- I love old people I, but <laughs> yeah, like well, that sounds super patronizing I don't mean it in that way but like I have such a I just love listening to my grandma well my dad's mm. mom is dead now but both my grandmas I used to just love listening to them talk and tell me stories because they've just lived and existed in a world so different to the world that I've I know yeah. and it's just fascinating to talk to them but um yeah, I mean Audrey, my grandma, you know, my mum's also sort of cares for her and it it definitely as um amazing as Audrey is, it is difficult. It can be
0: difficult. Yeah. Well I think I think the other thing is that um the you know, Greg is here all the time as well and does huge amount. My brother in law, Greg's older brother, is around the corner and he's here a lot. My I've got two sisters who are nearby um so firstly there's a great deal of support so if I'm going to be out and about there's there's somebody I think the reason it falls on women is um you know a 90 year old woman doesn't want her son in the bathroom with her and why should she you know it's that sort of stuff and I think there is an element of um you know all girls together um you know whereas I noticed with my lovely dad he he didn't have any um worries about being looked after by a woman you know he didn't but but greg was often you know if there were certainly you know more private things greg would be the one to help there more because so i think there's there's those things as well um but it's
1: greg, just to put it on the record now i'm 63 but within 25 years <laughs> i don't want you in the bathroom really. there we go.
2: I, I won't be there <laughs> i will not be there do not worry but it's interesting because like you know i also just do think that there's a thing that women just will do it they're just you know me and my mum were talking the other day about like she was saying that it's it's fascinating I ask her how she is far more than my brothers not it doesn't mean they don't care they just they don't have that same kind of empathetic thing that like women are just conditioned to have which is like I worry about my parents and their well-being, you know, don't I, Dad? I'm always worrying about you a lot. Um, and I just don't think, and it's super interesting because I can just see exactly what's going to happen. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be me because I'm going to be like, well, I don't want them to not have anyone caring. Yeah, for yeah.
0: And that um, is actually, you know, the the stats are that there's 8.8 million of us who are unpaid carers um, and the, the majority are women. And a, a woman has, by the age of 59, a 50-50 chance of being a carer whereas the odds for men are not till they're 75 and when I was trying to work that out I thought well I I think I get that I think that that means that women care for anybody who needs the care and husbands care for them yeah so that's the thing you have a lot of people who are very elderly caring for each other which is an extraordinary thing um, really and you know I mean there's I think I can't remember I should have checked before I came on it's something like Two million households, single-person households of people over eighty. Two million. I mean, it's unbelievable. But the thing.
1: Well, I, listen, I'll give you one of those. Last four years ago, for the first time ever, the nappy market in Japan was bigger for adults than babies. Oh. So, yeah, you know, wow. Good yeah. morning.
2: Good. <laughs> but Dad, do you think? Do you think you could care for Mum? You know, God forbid something well, happens to her first.
1: On the practical, practical side, probably. No. Because I'm so impractical. Mm. I'd, I'd give it a go, but. I, Would I'd you wipe her didn't... bum? Oh, Grace, we don't need to talk about that. Ways. why do you have to? And, oh, you
2: it might happen. Right this is the thing you can't no, be screaming. This stuff happens, no, yeah. And one day I might have to wipe yours. That's just how life goes. No, but you, you just might, you just don't know
0: <laughs> this early in the morning. But you know what? This the thing that is interesting about this is that there is. There is there are such different levels of what required. So I have never been in a situation, I've been very 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 lucky that both my parents and Granny Rosie they are sharp as tacks. Um, that their, their issues were not to do with dementias and Alzheimer's. That is a completely different issue. I also think you know one of the reasons I'm, I wrote the book is. I, you know, I get fed up with the fact that all the discussion about aging is so negative. The language is so negative. The idea that everybody is a problem that people are living longer with. We should actually say this is our brilliant NHS and the brilliant way that things are better in the last century and a bit than they were in previous centuries. You know, and so, I mean, I think that's the other thing. that There's quite a lot of books about caring and people are in extreme situations that they're having to deal with. Um and then others, you know, are, are not dealing with extreme situations. And I, and I, you know, there are lots and lots of people in their 80s and and in their 90s who are living independently, completely, brilliantly.
1: So I kind of feel so that. Is this, is, this, is the caring book going to be a Pollyanna <laughs> view of caring, the joy of the caring. joy of caring,
0: with all the men with beards? We <laughs> all. Um, uh, it no, it's quite. It is honest. Um, I'm not. I'm not really a memorist or somebody who writes from a personal experience, obviously, because my books are full of death and mayhem and massacres and stuff. And, you know, that's not what it's like in Sussex, uh, mostly. And um, but it is. It, I would say it's a. Lo- it's a love letter to my parents and to Granny Rosie. It's also a story about grief um, and being very disabled by that when. Um, what it means to care for somebody until they die, and be with them when they die, and um, and also all of the things about how you negotiate agency, I suppose. So that moment, you know, when I'm going on at mm-hmm. Granny Rosie and saying, "Oh, we haven't really eaten anything today," and then I think, "Well, actually, shut up, Kate. She's an adult. It's up to her." Um, you know, you know. Th- 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 so it is about that and. So it's not it's not la all the flowers are growing beautifully in the garden, um, but it is it is absolutely positive about the experience of being a carer, even though it's also really tough and it's very sad because the thing about being a carer is for an older person who you love that it will look, it's only ever going one direction.
2: Obviously. And how, did it change your relationship with like your own life? that sort of realisation that this will be you one day or could be you, you know, that's...
0: I think it's actually, Grace, kind of the opposite. I I think that I feel in some ways younger than a lot of people of my age feel. So I'm not thinking, oh, my God, I'm 60 this year. I'm thinking... Because I spend so much time with people in their 80s and 90s, I don't feel... I don't feel that time is ticking in quite the way. You know, a friend of mine who, um, who, you know, most of my friends are in their 60s. And he said, you know, it's Sniper's Alley now, Kate. You know, it's that thing that somebody's fine and then they're ill. And so, of course, I do think about all of those things, like anybody does, about getting older and what if, you know, there's something wrong with you, you don't know, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But I think the experience of being around older people a lot of the time, my granny has a friend, who used to be in this entertainment troupe called the Old Timers. And they sang old-time musical songs. And this kind of became a thing at the beginning in the first lockdown when Clap for Carers was a positive thing about NHS workers rather than being co-opted elsewhere. And everybody went out around here. And, you know, we live in the suburbs of, of Chichester. And so lots of people could come out of their gates and be apart from each other. And it was, you know, like, it was a very positive thing, I think, for most people at the beginning. And Granny decided she wanted to do play for carers. So we took her electric piano out into the street with a great long trailing wire. And when it had finished, the clapping, she started to play all those musical songs like Roll Out the Barrel and We'll Meet Again and all the rest of it. And, of course, my lovely daughter um, filmed it. And so then, of course, it went like those things do. And then the rest of the next week, I was Granny Rosie's PR. And she went on. (laughs) She went on Holly and Phil. She was very excited about that. Did radio interviews, which she's got a hearing aid, so she can't hear. So just kept saying, "You're on my deaf side. I can't hear a thing." And it was, <laughs> you know, proper old musical turn. But her friend from that group, which they doesn't run anymore, because when I, she was asked by Victoria Derbyshire why the group didn't um, run anymore, she said, "Well, they're all dead." So obviously, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but she, um, the thing, the thing about it is that her friend, who is 92, <clears throat> register blind excuse me comes up in the, you know when we're not in lockdown once a week and they go into her bedroom and sing songs
1: so oh. you know I
0: think it, it's all of those things that I just that's why I wanted to write the book um because it's it is tough many people have a really tough time being carers they get absolutely no help and no respite it's the lowest of any of the benefits that you can have if people didn't step up for free the entire health system would collapse um and it's, it's a really big issue. And, you know, the still not Commission, you know, reported, I think, in 2011, having been set up in 2010, still none of yeah, them have been
1: implemented. Right. I mean, you know. And do you, all all three of us have written both fiction and non-fiction. So which of, um, which of the two do you prefer when you're writing?
0: Uh, I don't, it doesn't feel different. Does it feel different to
1: you, writing? Oh, yeah. Does it? Uh, well, I suppose. Yeah. I was surprised. I yeah. thought it would feel completely different to you because you're you're taking you're taking us into a what feels like a very 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 different world. Yeah, I've gone back in fiction, like the 1970s. Yes, I know.
2: Kate, how do you even how do you get into the zone when you're writing in you know for in a completely different era? Do you have like a meditation sort of thing of I, channeling I, the world? I do
0: I do a lot of research. You know, a really mm. really a lot of research. Um, even though my books are are big, uh, oddly, as a writer, I'm a sprinter. So once I sit down to start writing, I'm like eight hours a day, seven days a week, Christmas or raining, as my mum used to say, until a first draft is done. And the first draft is kind of like all emotion. It's so, okay, let's see what this story is. And then when I've done that first draft, I think, okay, I see now what the story is. So with The City of Tears, i knew that it was going to be set between 1572 and 1594 because it's you know it's a story 300 years of history a feud between two families a catholic and a protestant family that will last that period of time and the beginning books are set against the backdrop of wars of religion in france so I, I knew that so i've done i've read you know all the books i've been to the archives i've been to the libraries i've um, looked at old wills, uh, you know, to see, um, you know, what people bequeathed to each other, because that's a great way of getting the texture of life, uh, you know, being to the art gallery, seeing what people wear. And all of these things matter when you write adventure fiction, not because it's like, oh, look, I've done the research, but it matters because if my lead character is running away from the soldiers, well, can she run? What are her shoes like? Because if they're just wooden clogs, she can't run in those. Or if her skirt is really wide, then she can't climb out Window and down a tree, so the research matters because it it's about how the plot works. Um, so mm-hmm. I've done all of that before I start writing, so that I'm completely immersed in standing in the shoes of someone, you know, a woman from the 16th century. And all of my fiction is about putting women's stories <laughs> centre stage. And when I was first writing, you know, my my the book that did so well for me that I could be a writer which, you know, I was an overnight success at the age of 45. Um, so, you know, it was that sort of thing. And it was a book called Labyrinth. And I was trying to explain it to my dad. And I said, you know, it's like the adventure stories you used to read me when I was little. But in my books, the girls get to have the swords. And he said, well, darling, I've waited all of my life for a woman on a horse with a sword to come and rescue me. Whoa. <laughs> and I thought, OK, he gets it, you know. so So it's a very different sort of process because obviously it is just about, a deep dive into a completely different time, but by the by the moment I'm at this laptop starting to write, I, I I know the world. It's like painting the stage set, and then you the actors are
2: in the wings, and and then they. Did come. you have a feeling that Labyrinth was going to do as well as it did? No. Like, no,
0: no. It was like I'm sure you you know we've all felt it. We've all been there. It's just like you, particularly for your first book. Um, although Labyrinth was actually my fifth. It, you just uh, you don't think that anybody except for your mum is going to read it. The idea that strangers will part you know part with their money, um, and it was a really weird experience because I'd been we first bought a tiny house in Kakasan in 1989, and it was only after a few years of being there that I realised that this kind of I always think of it as like the whispering in the landscape um, that there was a, that there was a story that there was a story for me here. Um, and that, that, you know, I hadn't gone to Kakasson expecting that. And it, so it was a long period of time before I was writing it. And it, it, it wasn't a joke quite, but it was like all our friends in Kakasson in the cafes and stuff, they would go, how's the book going then, Kate? And I go, oh, it's going really well, you know, year after year, no book, nothing happens. And so that was, that was odd. It had been in my life for quite a long time. And then it published on the 7th of July, 2005 which was the day that the four bombs went off in London. And so I got off the train from Chai, as we call Chichester, and walked through London because I prefer to walk anyway. And I did notice there were quite a lot of people about and I could hear a lot of sirens. But it's impossible to remember now that back in 2005 that mobile phones were not ubiquitous in the way that they have become. And I arrived at my publishers and they looked at me with complete horror and said, what are you doing? I said, well, it's my publication day. And they said, "We well, haven't heard, have you? And so then I spent the day with everybody in the publishers, all you know, crammed together in a room, not knowing whether people should leave or go or whatever. And, of course, the only thing that matters about that day is that people died and it was so awful. Um, ironically, it's also Greg's birthday, my husband's birthday. <laughs> um, but what then happened was that booksellers, um, were still saying, have you read this book? So after a week where everything was shut, and of course, you a know, book doesn't matter in the slightest in the scale of real things, but the book went to number 10 in the chart. And that is the chart that I kept because that felt like a miracle. I mean, it felt like now that's it. I've worked all these years on this book and it, it got into the chart. And it <laughs> felt... Well, yes, subsequently there was a there was a bigger story, but that was, <laughs> yes, yeah, no, that's right. But it was like, it's like answering Grace's point. It's, um, that felt like the moment. That felt like the moment. And then everything that subsequently happened felt a bit crazy and amazing, obviously. Um, but that moment standing in, we lived in Bognor in those days, standing in the local Tesco's in Bognor with my children, and seeing the book on the shelf in the number one slot and then, you know, because it was a supermarket deal and it was number 10 in the Sunday Times. And I thought I don't it will never get better than this. This this feeling is incredible. <laughs> um, and it's good to remember that because, you know, what well you both know if you if you have a success, then it's easy to get caught up in a what if it's not as good again, or but you just have to keep thinking, well, this is great to be able to do this at all, you know, and not get caught up in all of those things, because otherwise, it, good man. When, when,
1: when you'd written four novels. I'd written, four, I'd what, written
0: what, two, two novels and two so non-fiction.
1: And two, yeah, and so they, they'd kind of done okay, but not sort of made you feel you were, you know, I mean, would you have counted them as failures in your life, or were you Pollyanna as well?
0: <laughs> I was, no, no, the non-fiction absolutely, I felt was successful because they did what they, they were supposed to do. So the first one was a pregnancy book. Um. Yeah. Because I really hated the experience of being pregnant. And, um I, you know, I didn't like the intrusion of it and all of the people feeling they can touch you all the time. And, you know, all of that. And, and, it, and I was ill from 20 minutes after conception. I was being sick and continued to do that all the way through. It was really miserable. So I um, when I was pregnant with my son, second time, I just I saying to an agent friend, you know, the book I could I really wanted to read about the emotions of being pregnant, what it feels like wasn't out there and now I'm pregnant again and it's still not out there. And he challenged me. Um, He just said, well, why don't you stop moaning and write it? I said, okay, I will. Uh, Not really taking it seriously. And then he rang up the next day and said, I have a book deal for you. And so he propelled me into writing. And so that book did what I intended it to do. And then the second nonfiction went with that. You might remember, Alistair, Grace Will Be Too Young. Um, There was a big um, fly-on-the-wall documentary series about the Royal Opera House. And I did I wrote the book to go with that. Um, yeah, so so again, they, they were very sort of specific projects. And then I had to go at a couple of novels, and they were not very good. Um, and the reason they weren't very good, well, many of the reasons they weren't very good, was that I was sitting on my own shoulder all of the time. So rather than writing from the heart, you guys know you have to write a book from the out, you know from the inside out. You mustn't be standing on the outside thinking, oh, what will work in a book. And I was essentially an, a critic and an editor on my own shoulder before the ink was dry. And so it, it isn't they, they weren't anything, which is why they've stayed out of print. Um, you know but yeah. is that you know?
2: Cause that's, it's interesting it's because you were working on the other side of it, and you work. You were at a Random House, weren't yeah, you? Yeah. 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 And that can often. Give you too much of like an editorial, yeah, critical exactly, eye. Exactly,
0: exactly right. And I think that was the thing about Labyrinth. I wasn't in. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be a writer now. Um, and I, it, it, that that's been my experience. And what I say to people when they're asking for advice about novel writing is that just to remember that the person you are as a reader might not be the person you are as a writer. That listening to that writing voice. Um, is really important and you do it with your performance as well, um, Grace, and of course, Alastair, you've done it in many different fields. It's it's about that thing about being yourself. Um, and it, I, I wouldn't have thought that I'd be a historical fiction writer, even though I'm very passionate about history, but it just turned out that that's where my storytelling could come alive. And, and I realized that I'm not very interested as a fiction writer, about, you know, what I can see outside the window. I think other people do that brilliantly and I don't.
1: But how how do you stop the world of today in which you're Mm. immersed and you're living, intruding? And there are readicons. I mean, I I found myself reading the book and because I knew we were doing this, I read it quite (laughs) quickly. But I found myself just spotting what I was feeling resonances about today, whether it's to do with refugees, to do with tensions in Europe, dare I mention Brexit, without Grace shouting at me, um, to do with the role of women in society, to do with polarisation, the abuse of power, to do with fake news. Um, I'm sort of... And, and is there not a part of you that's thinking, oh, that, that will sort of have a new <laughs> today? Or are you, just, are you doing that world? Uh,
0: historical fiction only works if it is completely immersed and set in the time in which it's supposed to be. Um, the second you put 21st century views into the mouths of 16th century characters, the book fails, I think. Yeah,
2: because then that distracts you because you're like, oh, this is... Yeah, it's been shoehorned in. Some campaigner. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you're kind of doing
0: your own politics by the back door sort of thing. But the the simple matter is, and we all know this, and we're, you know, well, you and I, as are the same age, and Grace, obviously different, but we all know this from our own experiences, that history is a pendulum. It's not sadly a walk forward to better times for all. We don't learn. Um, Things go backwards and forwards. Um, There are periods of enormous conflict uh, when huge damage is done to to people, usually by governments and kings and queens in my my time. And then in the end, the killing stops and the talking starts and the pendulum swings back and there is a period of peace again. And then people become complacent. And so, the thing that's so odd about City of Tears and the, the whole series that I'm writing is that the idea came to me when I was in Franschhoek in South Africa, on the other side of the world, in 2010, when we did not have a refugee crisis and we certainly didn't have Brexit. The idea that you know we would shoot ourselves so quite spectacularly in the foot, um, and but it so therefore the resonances the reader will bring her or his own views to the book, no doubt about it. And with the, you know, the city of tears, France continued to persecute and expel the Huguenots, even though everybody knew it was not in France's interest to do that. So the whipping up of things to be, they are the enemy within, you can't trust them. The idea that, you know, if you want to worship in your own language, that's tantamount to saying you don't believe in the authority of the king. All wars of religion are about power. They're not about faith. They never have been. And at court at that time, you have two very powerful Catholic families and a Huguenot family. And all of that really is about big beasts clashing. Now, (laughs) you can't turn on the television without seeing the big lumbering beasts crashing and that idea that, you know, it seems nonsensical to us. That people would actively damage their own country or the people that live in it for, not for a dare, but because they want to be more powerful than the other guy or whatever. But this is what happens. And I think with, with you know, one of the things about being a historical novelist is, you you know, you just have to hang on to the fact that in the end, the words win. In the end, people start to talk and get back together. And that was why it was very important with the city it is for me to go from 1572 with the most notorious massacre, uh, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in August uh, 1572, to the crowning of Henry IV in 1594, which brought peace to France after a generation of civil religious war that had seen more than a million people displaced, tortured, executed, exiled. And then book I'm starting at the moment 1610 he's assassinated
1: you know okay would you be tempted for example to do a a novel about real people like Marta and Pete and and with a family and all that but set them like in with Brexit as the backdrop or with the Northern Ireland peace process as the backdrop or you know something that is just more modern do you feel it has do you feel for you 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 have to have this historical context. I I
0: don't think that I have the skill to do a modern panoramic novel. That might not be true, but all of my stories and books come, and I don't know how it is for both of you with your fiction as opposed to nonfiction, is it's got to be something that just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. And oddly, recent history doesn't do that for me. Um, what I like about the further distant past is the sense that we are who we are because of what happened then, um, that sense of the continuity of human experience. And particularly, I suppose, the reason I feel so strongly about this is that obviously, you know, my, <laughs> I'm a feminist and I, all of my working life has been about that, has been about standing shoulder to shoulder with other women and promoting other women's work, and but also trying to tell the truth about women's experiences. And what I think happens is that often contemporary politics and society and mores and things uses and abuses history in order to justify what's happening to women now. And it's never true. Because, again, there is always this idea that in the past, women sat around doing embroidery. didn't do this they didn't do that you know all of these things but actually women's um, lives and opportunities go up and down too so women in the southwest of France have a lot more freedom in the 16th century than they were to in the 19th so that matters to me a great deal that sort of animating of underheard and heard women's voices um, Mm -hmm. at the middle of history so this is the phone and I will tell you that that is Granny Rosie's friend ringing up to see how she is (laughs) It's the only time the actual landline ever wings. I'm sorry about that. It will... It's not, no, because it, it, it would... Uh, it, I will wing him and have a longer chat later because it will be, a you know, the chat for the week.
2: <laughs> Can I... Because Well, I just wanted to... The thing that I find really interesting about history with women is, like, it's it's on the flip side. Now, people are just like, oh, well, what you ha- what women have now is so much better than in the past. And actually, like you're saying... That's not always necessarily true, as we've seen in America in the last, like, in Trump's presidency, like women's rights are being stripped back. So, that's another thing that's like a form of gaslighting now, of people being like, "Well, look how great you have it." But I wanted to ask you about the, because the, you started the Women's Prize for Fiction, and that's how you met Scarlett, um, and she loves judging on that, and, <laughs> and it was like the highlight of her last year. Um, but how, I mean, like, why did you feel a need to start it first of all?
0: Well, I mean. Of, there were lots of people involved. Um, you know, I always get the credit because I'm the one that does the talking, but there were lots of people involved. And it was, um, I mean, amazingly, 25 years ago now. Um, and you know, we've been going for 25 years, but the actual impetus was the Booker Prize shortlist of 1991, where uh, there weren't any women on the shortlist at all. Now that is absolutely fine, in that the judges have every right to choose the book that they most value, or they most enjoy, or they think is most worthy of of the criteria of the prize. But the point was that nobody noticed. And when it was put out, people said, you know there's no women on this list? And we were like, oh. And there was a a group of us who worked in publishing, or were editors, or journalists, or um, campaigners, or librarians, you know, in the wider world, men and women. Said, can you imagine if they had put out an all-female list? It would have been seen as an act of something. Um, and for me, quite often, all you need to do when, when you're kind of interrogating misogyny or sexism or indeed racism or uh, or you know anything, is just do the flip test. Just turn it around the other way and imagine how, what the reaction would be. And so we did a bit of research and discovered that even though at that stage some 60% of novels published were authored by women. Um, Of course, looking back, it's quite a narrow band of women, white middle-class women for the most part. So a lot of people were still being left out of that, but there wasn't a problem of women actually getting published, but fewer than 9% of books ever shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. So there was a massive problem with the honoring and respecting of women's work. And then when we did some more research, it was very straightforward. It was like essentially that literature with a capital L was the real writing. And then women sat over there and people of colour sat over there. and you know, all of, So there was this idea that literature was neutral. But actually what that meant was it was George Bernard Shaw um, or, you know, a man with a beard in those days. You know, it was always used to be the, the, the gag. So we decided in the spirit of being positive, rather than start to complain to all the prizes and, and have some sort of quota system, which, you know, I think quota systems are really important in terms of employment but I don't think they work in prizes and things like that because you you just don't know what you're going to get. And, you know, when you're judging apples and pears and all of these sorts of things. So we thought, what's the best way to try and address this? Because prizes matter because they keep books on the shelf that otherwise might be on and off the shelf in a matter of weeks. And they also matter because they are part of how our story is told. So if women's writing is left out, then again, we have a very partial view of history. And so we thought, well, okay, we'll start our own price. And then, <laughs> yeah, so 1996 was the first year, and the meeting, to start talking about it, the first meeting I went to was the beginning of 1992. So we spent... <laughs> well, the joy is, you know, people like you and Scarlett and my daughter and my son, and, um, you know, I can remember maybe five, six years ago being at an event and turning to a friend of mine who is a little bit older than me and saying it's happened hasn't it feminism's back because you know i i grew up working at the tail end of the last wave of feminism and at the tail end of unions being powerful so i was you know the mother of the chapel for the nuj for publishing and did all of that and was part of that collective you step up you you talk about things like Crashes. you you know you're part of a working movement and it was a, a very odd thing seeing that all of that collectivity both in feminism and, and in you know positive trade unionism in those days um, just kind of so easily being vanquished I mean it wasn't easy obviously and Alistair will know much more about this uh, but my first job in publishing was editing Tony Benn's diaries so I had This real, you know, for years. Tony Benn was my first visitor in Lewisham Hospital when I had my daughter, right? Which was uh, because I'd gone into labour six weeks early, so you know I wasn't supposed to be off by then. Um, But it meant that you know I was I was very interested in all of this and um, industrial relations and all of these things, and it just went so quickly, exactly like you were saying, Grace, about uh, women's rights. You know, rights can be taken away so quickly. And things change so, so quickly. And things that seem absolutely hard and fast and you think everybody agrees, you discover that no, people don't agree at all. And so then there was a long period of what was always called post-feminism, the idea that so complete uh, anti-collectivity, the idea that if you were not doing well as a woman, it it was your fault. Um, There wasn't any, you know, that, that you didn't mention that maybe there were issues about women's employment or glass ceilings or um Black women and women of color you know not being invited into the same interviews or spaces because it, there was a very, very strong, dare I say it thatcherite ethos, which was survival of the fittest, and if you and if you're not therefore made the boss, it's because you're not good enough it it was just endemic. and we launched the women's prize into the the middle of that, and when I would say, you know this is why we're doing it, and you know positively we're we're doing it for these reasons. People would look me in the eye and say, "If women were any good, they'd win the real prizes." And you go, "Now that's a that is a point." Of but time. also, women
2: would say that. Oh, yeah, I totally. mean, this is totally yeah. Th- this is what like the one thing I'll say, which I wanted to ask you about that I find super interesting is like I do think generationally between yours and my generation of feminists, there are lots of differences. And like one of the things going on at the moment is you know this whole debate around transgender women and, and what their rights should be and I, I find it kind of deeply I guess worrying and it's probably maybe a slightly older feminists than you but that there is this group of feminists who who will sort of patronise younger women in the way that, that they are doing right now and do do and that I think stems from that same attitude of like well women should just, should just be doing this and, and sort of dictating what women should be doing. And Scarlett and I, you know, I've gotten into so many arguments with older women. And I'm like, why aren't we all on the yeah, same yeah, team? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I do not understand this. Like we're wasting our energy having these arguments. Grace, you
0: do understand it because that's how patriarchy works. The most effective way to not achieve change is to set women against each other. And and, and it's an active thing. You know, when you look back into the 1970s, um, you know, I, I was I was not an active um, campaigner in the 1970s, obviously, I was doing my homework. Um, and but the key thing, for example, about equal rights and people arguing about, you know, what women should have and what women shouldn't have, a huge amount of the campaign against the, you know, women's libbers as they were called then. If you decode it, it's it's always just follow the money. You now, why did employers not want equal pay? They don't want to pay more money. They don't want money added onto the bottom line. And so then you realise that it's not that there is a genuine belief in all these newspapers of, of the 70s that women are less worthy or they should be paid less. But it is an active thing to, to manage people's budgets. So the, the thing that I always feel is, and I completely agree with you, is that you listen up and you listen down. And I mean that in terms of age, not experience or whatever. So I learn as much about feminism now from my daughter and son and their friends. Um as I would learn from myself reading things and following things. But I also learn as much up from women Mm -hmm. older than me. And I had, you know, the the story that I always tell is, when I was setting up the Women's Prize, I was on Women's Hour talking about it. And then I got a phone call after I'd come off air with this person. And I thought it was my sister taking the piss, actually. And she said, you know, I'd like to talk to you about giving some money for the Women's Prize. And I went, oh, yeah, hilarious. And and. There was this moment and it was this real person. Um, she you know, had got a lawyer to ring up and she was as she described herself a wife and mother. She was then in her eighties and she, she's obviously no longer around. And she said, you know, all of my um pleasure in life, apart from being a wife and mother, has been from reading. Therefore, I would like to give you a sum of money to endow the prize money in perpetuity. And I've spoken to all my children and that was amazing because and I always said, you know. So let's not forget that it was a woman in her 80s who helped the prize get started, helping younger feminists. And there was a moment when the press was really awful. And whatever I said, it was turned into Mosses angry, we will hate men, you know, all of this. sort of. The very first question I was asked on record at the very first event to announce that that this prize was gonna happen was, are you a lesbian? Um, and that was- That's unbelievable. I, know, I mean, you know, it, it was a tweedy arm went up at the back of the hall. <laughs> I had no experience. That's with a unbelievable. And it was it later learned out Daily Express um, and, and and he just did say to me are you a lesbian and I said no are you and everybody laughed but <laughs> it was a sign for how it was going to be and it was, God knows what it would have been like social media but I did that was the only time I talked to the anonymous uh, benefactor directly and I rang her up and I said I just want to say I really hope that you don't feel that you've done the wrong thing with this. We believe passionately in it. There's a lot of opposition. I'm genuinely surprised I would have thought anybody who loves reading would think this was a great idea but as I say it was in the in-between feminism time and she just said to me on the phone oh my dear we went through much worse when we were trying to get the vote so
2: that
0: Mm. is for me listen up and listen down so listen to the young women but also listen to the old women sorry absolutely
1: you, just on you, you, Grace always has a go at me for sort of banging on about Brexit the whole time, but I do think it's relevant to this. When you, I know you hate Brexit as much as I do, but is it partly because of this loss of rights and the ease with which yes. you can lose them? Well,
0: I mean, I think I think it's. Do I think that the EU and the way it operates and the systems is perfect? Very far from it, but I think it's better than the alternative. I also, I think partly because I spend a lot of time with people who are a lot older, um, the marvellous and wonderful Sheila Hancock said this much better than I'm going to paraphrase. But she said, you know, for her generation, this was about never again, peace in Europe, being in an alliance with your neighbours that meant that you'd got got their back, that you didn't turn on your nearest neighbours, so that it was part of the peace process. And I think I've always absorbed that. I think, you know, I think factionalism is almost always dangerous. I think that it's very easy, and we're seeing this happening, that the the more extreme elements in every part of politics, they they all meet at the, the top of the circle, you know, a t- totalitarian attitude. It doesn't matter whether you call it left wing, right wing, what, what you call it. Um, one is about, you know, there's one attitude, which is you listen to other people. You don't have to agree with them, but you listen to them and you try to find common ground. And the other one is he who shouts, loudest. And I'm using he deliberately there. Um, and we are in that period at the moment where um, there, there is a clarity about extreme views. And I think that that quite often happens in times when people feel a bit adrift and uh, that there isn't much clarity. And that can have, you know, obviously the period of history I write about in the City of Tears, it, that it's religious. It's the idea that there is a set of rules and you follow them. And if you do that, then you know where you stand. And I think that that is one of the things that's made it quite easy to manipulate so much of this. Firstly, a permanent anti-U diet in the newspapers for thirty odd years. But I think secondly, because there is a real sense of who 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 are we? Uh, what, what is it that we want? Um, is it unlimited, unbridled freedom for everybody? So what does that mean? Does that mean this person can say whatever they like? I think there's so that people like to know where they stand. And I think when people feel Less sure, then that's when it's very easy for people to go. Well, I, I'm just going to follow this set of rules, you know, because then then I've got some rules for living. Um, and you know, I think it, I, I did a tour in November 2019 with three other writers: Lee Child, Ken Follett, and Jojo Moyes. And we went off. Just <laughs> go you know, we were like some sort of superannuated ABBA, frankly, Um, Mm -hmm. but we went to Berlin and uh, Paris and to Milan and to Madrid, and just did big, big events saying, you know that what you read in the British papers is not, and what you hear from the mouths of British politicians does not represent the majority of people, regardless of whether they voted for Brexit or not. Because, you know, down here in Sussex, Chichester voted narrowly in favour of Brexit. I A lot of people who voted Brexit, and they voted in good faith. They wouldn't vote Brexit now because they realised that there wasn't good faith at the heart of it. But at the time, you know, and, and I think that's been very damaging to actually, Alistair, the idea that everybody who voted for Brexit is obviously a fool or hasn't thought about it. It's, it's not true. Um, it's not what I think. Um, but. I think that lack of respect for the other side helped, I know, an awful lot.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think where that comes to, I think the Brexiteers constantly say that people like you and I are saying they're thick when neither you or I have ever said yeah. it. Uh, but of course, I think they've they've worked out that their arguments are very, very weak. I'd love it if you wrote What <laughs> song. Well, yeah.
2: really, though, because it's, like, it's, it's a painful thing now. It's
1: happened. Yeah. It's happened. Just one thing about the about the city of tears. There's, you see, when Marta, who I think is a, am I, am I, am I meant to love Marta yes. quite a
0: lot? Yes, yeah, because she's a a naughty, principled, spirited girl who you know. So right. yes. So
1: when she when she so when she's a bit like Grace, then I guess. So when she vanishes, and then you have this heartbreak of of, of Minu, the mother. Um, do you genuinely think that the emotions that people felt back then, have they are they the same as we feel today or have, have the emotions changed? Or the way that we respond emotionally to events, do you think they've changed? No, I don't. I think the
0: human heart doesn't really change. I think society changes. I think expectations change. I think attitudes change. But I genuinely think that if in the middle of mad, wild history, which was kind of the point of this, that... It's not about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. It's about all the normal things that go on in anybody's normal life against the backdrop of real history. And when I was first writing, I would say to people, of course, we don't know we're living through history. And now we do. Um, But I was always struck by the fact that, you know, during the Second World War, and of course, my dad fought in the war and Granny Rosie and Mama were, were young people in the war, that all of the things about betrayal, about falling in love, about somebody going off with somebody else about discovering you were ill about you didn't get the job all of those things still happened so i've always felt that it's a very it's a very dangerous path because if you start to say those people in the past didn't feel like us then you start to justify what is done in the past in the same way that we know in every um evil i shall use the word regime says well the people who look like that they're not really human or these don't really count it's the same thing really and so this idea that people in the past didn't care about their children dying or getting lost because you know they expected it it's it's not true you only have to read john dunn you only have to read shakespeare you only have to read kipling just to name three people who've lost sons um so that was exactly what I try to do with my historical fiction is say, yeah, Minu as a 16th century woman, her views are different. Her views on sex are different. Her views on what is appropriate between a man and a woman is different. Her views on God is different. Um, you know, you can't stress enough in that period of time that you couldn't separate faith from your everyday life. It was the world. Um, It's not, you know, there are some people who feel that now, but, you know, we we live in a very different sort of environment. But I genuinely think that that moment when you realise that your naughty, spirited seven-year-old has somehow left the house and you don't know where she is, I think their hearts would turn in the way that ours would have done and would do. And I think that common humanity when you're writing historical fiction is really, really important. And I suppose that's why, you know, writing a Brexit novel, it's possible that I might do some, you know, it might be, suddenly I have an idea for how to do it. Um, it's never an idea for me. It's always an atmosphere and a feeling and a place. But I'm very struck by the First World War. There was a lot of writing in the First World War, as we all know, with the war poets and Octavia Vera Britain as well, and Edith Cavell. And, you know, there were people writing at the time. And then there's this really interesting gap of about 10 years. And then suddenly you get... Published in English in nineteen twenty-nine, but published in German in nineteen twenty-eight, what I still think is the greatest anti-war novel of all time, All Quiet on the Western Front. And mm-hmm. then the next year you get Joan Littlewood's Oh, you know, Oh, What a Lovely War. And so I think that the thing about Brexit and the pandemic too, possibly, that there will be there'll be a lot of people trying to write about these things now. But there will be a moment at which there is enough hindsight for it to become a story not an analysis and until that moment has happened it's i don't think novels. oh well, you know i'm moving forward now i'm in the 17th now you know i'm getting way up to date <laughs> you know, on we go on we trudge
2: dad i think you've got a bit of a crush is no. it
1: because
2: she looks a lot like mum
1: she doesn't look like mum. No, no, I've got a crush, but I, I, I do like her. I like her positivity. you have a, a
2: work crush?
1: No, I like her positivity. Well, your
2: novels have never been as successful as hers. So they certainly have not, though. <laughs>
1: but, but I was rather cheered by the fact she said that her first four didn't do very well. Okay, how right. many have you done? Four. Wow! So it could be the next one.
2: Next one, yeah. (laughs) Well, I just couldn't believe like how much time and research and all of that she puts into those books.
1: Oh, the research is incredible.
2: God, I don't have the patience for
1: that. Do you know what though? What's really interesting? You know, I said that thing. I know you think I'm obsessed with Brexit, which I am. But I think she'd write a really good novel in today. But I think she so loves history because when you, I've read this the book, The City of Tears, and the characters are fantastic. The and the historical setting is obviously crucial to that story, but her depiction of characters and stuff, I'd love it if she wrote a modern novel.
2: But then, don't you think? I get that. I, I think specifically pinning that to Brexit is a point. No, no, really I just mean, I mean a modern today, novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: of course. Uh, you know, the peace process. But Irish it's a bit peace like I don't
2: want to, once COVID is over, I don't want to watch TV programs about COVID. I don't. Mm. I don't want to watch, you know, comedies or stuff about the pandemic. I want it to be kind of over, and then mm. in fifty years, maybe we can revisit it via art. But I, I think once it's over, it's a bit like Brexit. I don't really want to talk about Brexit right now.
1: Brexit isn't no, over. Brexit is destroying my country.
2: I get it, but right. it has happened.
1: Yeah, that has happened. But the consequences happen anyway. Let's not go about Brexit. No, but I think what I really like about her is that. that one of the reasons I wanted to talk to her is actually because uh, I... Because always... you
2: wanted to get some advice for your novel. No,
1: I've always had a sense of her, of her profile, on, of, of, of any contact we've had before. And by the way, she did say she had a signed copy of my first novel, which obviously meant that she wanted to get a signed copy of that novel. Yeah, but maybe it's... Otherwise she wouldn't did have she got it. Did she say
2: it was your novel or The
1: it. No, she said it was my first novel. Interesting. Yeah, she actually said that.
2: Well, maybe she's got a crush.
1: Yeah, I kind of felt a bit of a vibe going on there.
2: That You've got such a long um, hair there. Where? You need to pluck it. On my cheek. <laughs> anyway, let us end this now. Get off.
1: Uh, no, anyway, so I thought she was really nice and uh, I think you could do with actually reading a bit of history.
2: One sec, Mum. <laughs> Let's end it. We were you just recording something.